Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello, welcome back to the Belonging Podcast. Becca Piastrelli here. So happy to be back with you, or if this is your first time here, stumbling upon this little podcast. Welcome. We're so happy you're here, and it is a we. I know it's just me here on this microphone in my office by myself. One of the beautiful things I think energetically about having a podcast is when I'm talking to my microphone, I really do visualize and feel the collective we that is participating in this conversation, even if it's just by listening, whether in your car, while you're on a walk, or in little like bits and pieces, little 10-minute chunks here and there when you have time. And I think because I can see that people are listening through like download numbers, I'm like, okay, hi, hi, (laughs) you're really far away. And I don't quite see your face, but I feel your presence in your heart and your curiosity and all of it. So hi, we're all here right now, aren't we? Mm, Today, really, really amazing, powerful, important conversation with Rachel Maddox, where we really dive in talking about the collective trauma that us humans, more than humans, are experiencing right now, particularly over a year into this pandemic. And that almost feels cliche to say, I think because I'm just hearing all about like, what are we experiencing one year into the pandemic, grief, trauma, blah, 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 and like my spaces at least. And what I really appreciate about this conversation with Rachel is the directions we take it in. We stumble upon community living and polyamory, and I share this experience I had in the grocery store. And it's just a really, I guess the word that's coming to mind is applicable and tactile conversation that I really welcome you into as well. I recorded this conversation a few weeks ago and trusted the timing for when it was supposed to come out. And it's coming out in a time that I myself personally have just gotten through a pretty deep grief hole. I really feel like I fell into a hole in the ground. And with moments like that where you know, mental health feels unstable and emotions feel shadowy and aloneness and a loss of faith, a loss of hope can enter into your body, enter into your whole being. I'm reminded simply by the power of being witnessed in your absolute truth without being fixed, which is, you know, the 
the premise of my existence at this point and what Hearthfire is all about and really just my flavor of connection because I decided to share in potent places what I was going through, which is in the circles I'm a part of with my partner and on Instagram, because that seems to be a place that I really feel powerful witness most of the time. Sometimes there's boundary crossing, but yeah, I, I shared that I was in grief and got a lot of me too, got a lot of, oh yeah, me too. And I see you and here we are together holding your hand. I'm just out of it. I had that experience. And that just helped me really go deeper into like, what's what, what am I experiencing? And really, I hadn't even really come to terms with the fact that one of the stresses I've been going through as a new mother is I am choosing to breastfeed my child. That came naturally to me. I know that doesn't come naturally to everyone. And since being five months postpartum, I'm now almost eight months postpartum, my supply dropped, my milk supply dropped, which created a real anxiety around, will I be able to feed my child with you know, breast milk with the the food of my body. There's a lot that more that goes into that that doesn't feel totally right to share here, but it ended up being a Saturday morning and I just got some gumption. <laughs> Friday had been really hard. I read a really troubling article about the future with climate change and I just sort of felt hopeless and like, what am I doing with this small child? And Saturday morning, I woke up and I just sent a text to a group of friends who are also new mothers and said, does anyone have any extra breast milk to give me <laughs> to feed my child? And a really wonderful friend named Carolyn said, you can have my whole freezer stash. I've been waiting for this moment to know when it's right. And this feels so right. And the flooding of my body with relief hormones, with feel-good relief feelings was immediate. And tears, tears, tears. And you know, a few hours later, she was in my house stocking my freezer with her milk. And I just feel such a deep relief and a deeper sense of safety in my body and a, a deeper sense of like a primal sense of we're going to be okay. You know, we're going to figure it out. We're going to be okay. And I, I share this to say thank you for witnessing me in that. And my hope is if you're a, a parent, a birthing person who had a different experience with feeding your child, that you can honor that and also honor mine, my journey. And really this feels like a important thing to share with this episode today because how many of us are either not looking at the sources of grief, the sources of our anger, of our sadness, and doing something else busily, which is what I was doing, just like not looking at it, not looking at it, not looking at it. And how many of us are feeling so weighted down by it and unable to speak it? And Rachel gives a lot more context about how to work with these feelings, these really hard feelings and experiences so many of us are going through in this time. And I just feel so liberated now. I don't feel like, <laughs> I don't feel like, da, 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 I'm all better. But I do feel um, more buoyant in my day. And, and that was a rough, you know, week. And to be able to reach out and share felt important. So maybe you're like, who is this Rachel person you're talking about? Like, let's get to it. So Rachel Maddox, is a trauma resolution educator, coach, and guide who's helped hundreds of humans move from sexual, complex, or developmental trauma into pleasure, power, and trust-filled relationships. She's the author of Secret Bad Girl, a Sexual Trauma Memoir and Resolution Guide, and the upcoming book, Rebloom, a Soulful System for Post-Traumatic Growth in Sex, Love, and Society, which is coming out next week. April 29th, you can go to rebloomtogether.com. Make a note. It's an amazing book. I've seen it already. In that book, Rachel uses stories and metaphor to weave together healing methods that are accessible, safe, fun, and effective. 
Rachel teaches and mentors other coaches, healers, and therapists who are devoted to trauma-informed, radically inclusive, pleasure-positive approaches to changing lives and culture. Like I said, this conversation weaves into really interesting territory, and I really enjoyed it. And so I welcome you into this conversation. We're all having tea together virtually uh, in a beautiful space with great back support and diving deep into what we are experiencing from a collective place and an individual place. So I welcome you in. Enjoy this conversation with Rachel Maddox. Hello, Rachel Maddox. Thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so this is a conversation that's been a long time coming because uh, last summer we were in like a little mastermind together with some amazing folks and we were both talking about our books coming out Mm -hmm. and it was really cool to share the different ways we've done it the different avenues we've taken you've done a you've this is your second book rebloom that's come out or coming out i'm not sure when where we are in time and space when this is being published and also to just get to know you on a deeper level and get to know your incredible work and something i love about you is that you blend your understanding of like the science of somatics and trauma with a real poetry and a real reverence for the earth and metaphor, which I think really helps someone like me who's not trained in this area, but very much curious, particularly from an inherited trauma, epigenetic, uh, historical, ancestral wounding and healing place to mm-hmm. your words sort of weave a deeper understanding. Whereas sometimes I read about trauma and I get a little bit confused or like, I don't know that like part of that, like girl in me that like wanted to get an A on the test and felt confused and (laughs) didn't do, you know, just like, Oh, I don't know what's happening. So this is all to say, I really appreciate you and the way you're so intentional with your words. And I was really looking forward to this conversation. I'm really happy. We both waited for the right moment Mm -hmm. to gather here together. Thank you, Becca. Thank you so much. Sure. So before I hit record, I asked you if there's anything that's really on your heart right now in this moment. We're recording at the beginning of March 2021. And you said you wanted to talk about the fact that uh, we are living inside collective trauma right now and, and the impacts that have on our relationships, on our businesses, on the way we interact and relate, the way we perceive information. And I just, my whole body said, yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I'm feeling that. I'm really feeling that. So mm-hmm. I'd love to dive in there if that's okay with you to just dive into what you're feeling, what you're sensing, what you're experiencing around this idea that all of us as a collective, because we are connected, we are all connected, just like the tree roots experiencing collective Mm -hmm. trauma in this moment. Yeah. And it feels almost like it's this like prolonged question mark of will this end? When will this end? Will we ever get out of this? Will we ever be together again? And so just that prolonged nature of the context that we're living through, which includes the context of you know, whole swaths of people denying the reality of something, which is in and of itself traumatic as well. The prolonged nature makes the trauma complex. So it's actually a complex collective trauma, complex meaning ongoing and relational and deepening over time and getting more tangled over time. So for me, I'm I'm looking out at the world and I'm looking in at my own world and just asking how are we being affected by what's happening in ways that we're no longer able to like see, right? We're not as shocked by the situation anymore. It's now more so moved into the complex prolonged territory where we're just living with the effect, living with the ongoing overwhelm. So things like not being able to gather with ease, not being able to look at strangers' faces, you know, if people are wearing masks, 
not knowing if someone that you are maybe have been out of touch with, if you fall in the same category or camp around your perspective with COVID. So those are just sort of like the belonging elements of it. Can we belong to one another? Can we share a sense of reality with one another? And can we come together? That's one piece. Then there's all of the intimate ways that this is prolonged difficulty for us. If anyone has histories of attachment challenges, attachment difficulties, feeling anxious or avoidant in relationship, feeling like you need to have the chance to cling longer, or you need to have the chance to push others away, and you actually don't have the opportunity to you know, reach out and cling longer to someone because you're single in a pandemic and you're now in panic, or you don't have the opportunity to really push someone away because you're partnered in the pandemic and you can't get space, that can be really overwhelming. And then you add the layer or the context of business or money or capitalism to the conversation. And if you have histories of complexity around not wanting to join a maybe extractive system, but you're trying to figure out how to make money and even more of your stuff is coming up around how do I serve people without exploiting them? Or maybe the opposite is coming up for you. You're like, I don't know what future financial security will look like, so I better make and keep as much money as possible. So there's just so many ways that the panic of this prolonged collective trauma is affecting us. And that's, yeah, it's just on my heart. I'm just like, oh, how much compassion can we pour inward and outward? Because this is actually really hard and in some ways unprecedented. Mm. Yeah, I'm having a a moment of um, wondering if anyone listening feels confused by the term attachment. And Mm. I'm wondering if you can share what that means. It's, it's, I've discovered a deeper meaning now that I've like had a child and I feel very strongly about attachment. If you can just share a bit more about what that means and how we can sense that and look at that in our lives. Yeah. So I like to look at things through a somatic or nervous system lens. And so my perspective about attachment is rooted in um, three core capacities that we develop in our earliest days. And then identities and emotional resonances form around those moves and what happened. So for the first move is being able to sense what we need in our bodies when we're babies, when we're born and the umbilical cord is cut. That's that first separation from our parent and that first moment where we're asked to cry for what we need to sense that we have needs and to cry for what we need, which is the second component of secure attachment physiology. I can sense in my body that I have needs and then I can mobilize. I can make it known, whether it's through cries or facial expressions or movements or whatever. And then the secure attachment happens when we're responded to in our need. When our cue, when our cry, when our wiggle, when our whatever is responded to, And it doesn't have to be perfect, right? But it's responded to enough that we get the sense that we can receive our needs still. And our nervous system then relaxes. We're like, huh, okay. And we get a sense that this cycle of I feel needs, I mobilize on behalf of my needs and make them known, and then I receive them. And we come to expect that that's possible, not possible by ourselves, for ourselves, but possible relationally. And then we grow up and we start to learn, okay, there's like a a quote unquote weaning process that could happen that says you can feel your needs. You can mobilize on behalf of your needs. Sometimes others will meet those needs and sometimes you'll be called to meet those needs. But either way, you can still receive your needs because you're in relationship with everything. You're in relationship with others and you're in relationship with the resources in the world around you. There are ways to get your needs met. And then again, your nervous system can relax. And when you're learning to meet your own needs, your caregivers or your parents support you in that process. They teach you how to both meet your own needs and be met by others. And that to me develops sort of healthy sovereignty and also healthy worthiness and a sense of receptivity. So that's my view of like how we become quote unquote securely attached. We know that 
we can both receive from others and receive from ourselves. And then what that also means is when we're feeling a little bit smothered, like, no, I don't need that from you. I can do it myself. We can push somebody away a little and be like, I got this. And they're cool with that. Or when we are like, actually, I really need to be met by someone else. We can call on support and be met there. And that again, creates a ha in our nervous system, a sense of relief, a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, both personally and interpersonally. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I've had it so on my mind as I'm six months postpartum as we're recording this and I I hear my baby cry and I think, I gotta, (laughs) I gotta do her. I gotta do her right. I gotta respond. It's so motivating. And I hear my baby cry and I hear my inner baby, like Becca baby cry. There's something, there's a lot of mirroring that's happening for me in this postpartum mothering process where I can just really, I'm very tuned into what my childhood experience was and what like my inner child experience is when Mm. I hear my baby cry or like I can even, it's so subtle now, like I just see a look and I, or she just moves her cheek towards me and I'm like, yep. Yep. Here you go. It's, it's very, Mm. it's a body response. It's not a mind. It's just like that attachment is so clear. And I wonder those who are listening. Yeah. It's really powerful. It's really powerful. And congratulations. Thanks. That sounds really, just really what a gift for your baby that you have that attunement. Yeah, it feels like a privilege and it feels like an honor, <laughs> like, yeah. like, um, like a gift for me too. There's mm. real healing that can happen there. And so I wonder for those who are listening, who are thinking about attachment and thinking about whether their cries were responded to, and maybe there's something happening in certain folks who are like, that feels <laughs> dicey, that feels itchy and that stings, that's hard. That's bringing up a lot of stuff. That's the work, right? That's the work we can do as adult humans in this space. And I wonder in this experience of collective trauma, what the opportunities are being presented to us, right? This is like the work you tend to, the work you cultivate within all of us is, I love this term regenerative so much. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there's like an opportunity and I love this garden metaphor you use of like planting the seeds for flourishing for all of us. Like even with the most like harsh traumatic experiences, whether we're babies or later and where we can look to Mm. these, these little signs, these little signposts happening now, but happening always like how we are responding to the pandemic, how we are responding to a feeling of isolation, how we are responding to um, social justice callouts, how we are responding to, you know, we're talking about these conversations about pronouns that we are personally having experiences with. Like, I would love to hear more about how to follow the threads of that to a healed place, to a flourishing garden place, because that feels so yeah. motivating as opposed to like, trauma healing work, which feels like, ugh, do I want to take that on? <laughs> that is really intense. I have no energy right now. So yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, one thing that is true probably about this time for many people is we're connected even more to that which we need that we don't have, right? We're more aware, acutely aware of what we need that we don't have if that sensitization to need is still alive. So some people might be listening to that and thinking like, actually, I'm just a little shut down around needing anything because needing anything feels impossible. And so one thing that, you know, I like to propose when we're in a place of recultivating our attachment sequencing as our, or in ourselves as adults is what are all the things that you might imagine the person on this earth that you love the most needs right now in order to grow and thrive both at the body level and the soul level. So instead of it being about you, 
your very best friend or your child or your elderly grandparent, you know, and it might be, or parent, and it might be a little bit activating even to think about that because again, it could feel overwhelming. It could set you into panic of, but how will these needs ever get met because all of these barriers are here. But just beginning with that place of like, what are all the things that someone you deeply love likely needs in order to grow and thrive? both at the body level and the soul level. And just starting to name those things out loud or on a piece of paper and noticing what comes up for you. Noticing if you end up kind of going into a hyper mode of like, okay, this person needs that and so do I. And so I'm going to mobilize really hard to make sure that all of those things get met. And I'm going to be the superhero in this situation and take charge, which is a bit of a physiological hyper response to seeing and sensing that there are unmet needs. Or the opposite could happen where you go into a little bit of collapse where you're like, these needs are impossible. I'm going to just fold that paper up and put it in the drawer and forget about it and just turn on a TV show because I can't cope. And both of these things are actually fine. There are body's emergency responses. There are natural security system kicking in saying, okay, well, if we're going to respond to something difficult, we're going to employ hyper physiology. And if that doesn't work, we're going to just drop down into the hypo to numb out a little bit. So the regulated way forward though, because you're like, okay, give me some hope here, is you take that list and you say, where's the smallest doable place to begin? Here are all the things that so-and-so beloved friend of mine would need in order to grow and thrive at the level of body and soul. Is there one, one small doable thing from that list that doesn't actually put me into hyper mode or hypo mode to imagine for them or perhaps to imagine for myself, right? If I turn that list inward, what are all the things I need to grow and thrive at a body level, at a soul level, and maybe make those two separate lists. Is one of these lists feeling easier and more accessible to me? Can I go with one or two things on that list and titrate, just do the smallest bit, maybe with some consistency and see what starts to happen? Because then the body or the soul gets that memo that it is possible to receive. And that cycle of sensing needs, mobilizing for needs and receiving needs starts to regenerate. As you're saying, we start to get that positive feedback loop that tells us, okay, maybe there's less emergency than I thought. Maybe there's more choice possible here. Thank you. I'm applying this immediately to myself. (laughs) I'm listening (laughs) to you. Great. (laughs) So story time. So I am haven't gone to the grocery store a lot in the last year, (laughs) but I remember being very pregnant and going to the grocery store. And this was a time when like, we just didn't know where the virus was and the global conversation around food and shopping felt very confusing. I remember I wore gloves and a mask and I got to go early in the morning because it was like over 65 and pregnant people could shop at like 9 a.m. at my grocery Mm. store. And I was like, I'm going. I go. It's a very lovely like organic co-op hippie joint. And I felt very just like, "Mm, yay. I feel the love of this space. And um, I had an interaction with a woman who was really in a fear response and was telling everyone to back away from her, back away from me. And I noticed my response was like, not compassionate. It was like, get this bee away from me. It was so not loving. (laughs) So, and I was like, what's wrong with people in my head? And then I, I was like kind of triggered. And then I went to the oranges. <laughs> there was a guy next to me getting the oranges and he was he was telling me that I better stockpile food because a food shortage is coming. And I and there was like mention of guns and I, I was so freaked out by this grocery store experience of running into two people 
who were also freaked out by what was going on. Hmm. And I haven't thought about that until I was listening to you just like explain, like looking at them and their needs and what can you give to like regenerate. And I, I feel a little sad about my response and completely understanding about why I felt, mm-hmm. why I responded the way I did. And I, yeah, I wonder if in those moments I could have done something to self-regulate and get to a place of like, we are all in a really unprecedented moment where we're feeling, he was feeling safety around food and she was feeling safety stuff around body. Yeah. And I was feeling safety stuff around me too. And we were just butting heads. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe safety stuff around connection. Like, can we have c- caring connections with one another? Do you have to put your all your fear on me? Yes. I don't know if that's true, but it's sort of what I'm sensing maybe. That's like, that's been one of my primary things, I think, in my experience of this trauma has been like a real grieving of a loss of just like, the, the the sweet smile on the trail mm. or at the farmer's market or just like that safety of human connection. Yeah. It's coming back. I also have to like really crinkle my eyes now so people know I'm smiling because I can't show them <laughs> with my mouth. <laughs> but I'm like yeah. determined to crinkle my eyes real good so people can feel that from me, which has been something I've learned. Yeah. To, to like reconnect in that way because that grief was really intense for me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What you're sharing makes me think of just this idea of what is our range of resilience? What's our range of regulation? Or some people call it like a window of tolerance for difficulty or intensity. And just how the more we regenerate that life cycle of sensing our needs, responding to our needs and receiving our needs, the more that we trust that it's possible even under big difficulties. And the more that we also start to trust that it's possible for other people when we see them in emergency and when we see them expressing emergency, we go, all right, there's a highly expressed need that there's mobilization on behalf of and that they're actually doing their part right now to get their need met. And it's not working for me because I actually need something different, which is sort of where intersovereignty comes in. Like, can I honor their needs being different than my needs and the, the actual right overlap between them and me? And I guess that sort of brings us back to what you're saying. Like, there's just a deep grief because since so many of us are in or have been in either extreme or perhaps now more chronic responses to the situation, we're seeing ourselves more polarized and literally more at opposite poles. So when we start to kind of physiologically hang out in a certain place for a while, we then begin to form stories and identities around that physiology for safety and for protection. So it actually is physiology first and then stories and and identities and and opinions that kind of reinforce our physiological safety. And because we're all kind of responding and trying to get safety in different ways, we're then forming identities and stories around pretty polarized and extreme physiologies. And yeah, it's sad. It's sad. It's super it's super sad. And also on the other side of that, like the shadow side of that, it's like, wow, we're all kind of also resonating with people who have similar trauma responses to this collective trauma. And we're like, okay, those are my people. And it's just literally based on trauma responses. Like we're having collective trauma bonding happening. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Right. Like were we all raised similarly? Is that really what it is? Yeah. And when I think about it like that, it helps me personally have compassion for the opposite side of the pole, even when it comes to politics. And I am like as left as it gets. Like when I think about trauma and physiology, I'm like, okay, these are trauma responses to feelings of, you know, threats and job security, threats to community, threats to all of these things, you know? And it's then bonding with people who have similar trauma responses, which is 
in and of itself also a trauma response to flock together with people like you for safety. And we're all doing that. But the thing is, trauma responses are not post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth is being able to find your center, refine enough resiliency or enough regulation to have choice, cognitive, compassionate choice, as opposed to reactive responses to something that feels like or might actually also be out of your control. So it's like, how do we get there? <laughs> yeah. So my idea is instead of putting all this energy into fueling the trauma bonding, I'm specifically thinking of like Fox News and other outlets. Like what if we had collective grief ritual? That spans difference, that that goes across yeah. difference. You know what I mean? Like can yeah. we have collective grief rituals with those family members of ours that are on the other side of the table? Yes. Because we are all grieving. We are all grieving. Many have died. Many have lost financial security. Like many have lost community. Like there is so much connection that can happen. And just like, can we just have a moment together to acknowledge our grief? And maybe that'll never happen, but that is yeah. that is what I just keep coming back to is we need to pause and grieve together. And I actually just heard you say like we need, right? So it's like you feeling that collective need, your your body yeah. saying what we need is to cry together, is to grieve together. And it just makes me think, okay, what's the smallest doable way to mobilize? <laughs> what is it? Tell me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what came to mind for me was just like, and here's the thing too, right? Because sometimes it's not actually about doing, it's about holding the space for something to come to be, right? But it could even be, because again, the trauma response piece might be like, I'm going to hyper-mobilize to invite people from this part of my life and that part of my life. And I'm going to, I'm going to solve this need for collective grief. But instead it could be like, I'm going to just take like five seconds right now to hold space in the altar of my heart for all of these different people from all of these different walks of life who've lost things and for our collective loss of a sense of like a more cohesive human family. I'm just going to take a moment to actually receive that need right now to imagine receiving it without having to do anything. Mm. I'm doing that. Mm. Yeah. The smallest little step. Yes. I'm curious what your experience has been over the last year. What's come up for you? in that way. Yeah. I mean, I definitely in the very beginning had all kinds of attachment stuff coming up. I was at that point, now I'm living with my boyfriend, but at that point I wasn't. And I had this like deep self-hate actually arise that was like, shit, I knew we were supposed to be in community. I know, I knew we were supposed to be on the land together and we didn't get there. And I wasn't fast enough yeah. to, to, to like yeah. meet my own need. I wasn't, I didn't do it fast enough. And now I'm going to die alone. <laughs> like I'm going to be alone forever. Yeah. And just, I also experienced levels of like neglect and abandonment growing up. And so that panic around aloneness is something that I have familiarity with. And that was just really up for me. And it was one of those things where trying to resolve my aloneness by myself wasn't going to cut it. And I needed to receive nourishment from nature. And I also just really needed, need, I actually needed to mobilize to change my situation. And that mobilization, you know, came through a lot of reaching out to friends, a lot of, you know, connecting virtually. But then at some point I just was like, we need to live together. (laughs) We, my my boyfriend and I were living in different states and it was like, all right, 
this is, it's time. So that's like at the very personal level, a little bit of the journey I went through and then coming together. Oh, wait, actually, I need a little more space. I'm used to more space than this. So just a funny, funny balancing. That's that piece of things. I think also just when I look out at the at our collective landscape, I'm I'm in my own kind of spiritual reckoning or I don't know, maybe experiment. Um, I heard Adrian Marie Brown say on a podcast, I think with Prentice Hill, that we're all moving into the same future, but we're not all going on the same boat. And we won't all be having the same experiences or realities. And there was Mm -hmm. something that was actually kind of liberating about that, that we don't actually all have to go along on the same boat might free us up to choose the boat we want to be on and then to just make the most out of that boat. And not as a bypass because you could be on one boat and you can be like, hey, that shit that's happening on that other boat's not cool. Like that's a human rights violation or that's, you know, whatever. Or all boats deserve, you know, basic, their basic needs to be met or whatever the things are. But that idea that maybe at some level, these divisions are actually allowing us to create even more parallel realities even more powerful parallel realities. Like what if there's a way that it frees us up to be in smaller worlds instead of trying to all be in the same one? So for example, you know, I run a coach training program and we're very committed to equity and to centering the people in our space whose identities are most traditionally marginalized And that's a practice, you know, (laughs) you're not perfect at that. I am constantly practicing that. But that means that we have to say no to certain people coming on that boat that wouldn't be able to do that, right? Because that's what we're doing on that boat or in that garden. We are practicing that thing. Again, we're not perfect at it, but everybody who's in the garden is like, yeah, I'm up for that practice. And people who aren't up for that practice don't get to come in. And that's okay. Right? Because what we're doing is creating one kind of parallel reality where things and people and certain medicines can finally grow and thrive because they're in the right conditions. So maybe there's a gift in the fractioning if we can embrace it with a little bit of regulation or resiliency. If we can be like, actually, this is amazing. I get to totally invest with people who have similar visions or shared dreams. So that's also alive for me. <laughs> like, hmm. Wow. I, I'm, that's settling into my system right now in a really beautiful way. I thank you for that metaphor of like the boats and the bioregions <laughs> for the right. gardens. Yeah. Can I just tell you that I've been obsessively uh, reading accounts of the 1960s and 70s when Back to the Land was a really big thing in the United States. And I basically love reading about communes, but I love reading about why they failed. And I've wondered what is the deal because I'm like the revillaging person, you know, (laughs) just like, and I think I'm just like trying to find like what will make it work. And so when you shared your initial response, I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a little similarity there behind yeah. <laughs> yeah, behind wanting to make that happen. It's not happening yet. Is it the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. All of that. I was just reading about one last night in bed. <laughs> really- well, I'm actually curious, you know, what I've always, because I've also, yeah, I've been obsessed with the revillaging thing you know, from, from a wee age. (laughs) And one of the things I've always like heard from people is it's always sex and money that like ruins it. Like people end up sleeping with each other's spouses or it's like a poly thing and things devolve or things become kind of culty and everybody's like following the leader. And then there's a fraction or power dynamics, money stuff. Yeah. But what I've been, the kick that I've been on lately about this is like, and, and I think this is also kind of, I don't know, born from the work that I do is like people want to belong radically 
But true belonging happens when there's intersovereignty, not enmeshment. And so for intersovereignty to be there, like we have to be able to negotiate with one another. And negotiation requires you being able to say, this is what I need. And be able to see that's what you need. And like, here's the win-win. And we can't, a lot of people just don't have those muscles because the two first developmental traumas that we experience are neglect and abandonment or exploitation. And if those things aren't like refined in us, we can't have that inter-sovereign flow with one another. So for me, I'm like, all right, cool. I'm thinking more co-housing vibes. You get like a little like little complex. People have enough space where they have their own sovereignty, but there is also the inter-sovereign togetherness, the coming back together, you know, the ease of flow. But like, I feel like for community to function, people have to be able to negotiate. People have to be able to also stay with themselves. And also actually the more, cause like I'm doing all of these collaborations now more than ever in my life. Like my business now, I have a co-owner who's actually my oldest friend, but you know, that's a huge energetic deal. Like I'm not the only one in there with sweat equity and then, you know, living with my partner. And I keep realizing that what's required for those collaborations to go well is actually for me to stay even more with myself, to stay even more sovereign, to stay even more centered in my inner wisdom and in my truth and my needs and then come play from that place. But if I just get enmeshed and I lose my center, the whole thing starts to fall apart. So I think also enmeshment is actually maybe a reason why things devolve. Oh my gosh. I'm so into this conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Who knew we consider it in that, in that frame? <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always talking to Tim about like, what would it look like if like we bought the land and we brought people on? He's like, I got to have my own space. And he's like, I got to have my own space. And it very much speaks to his childhood experience. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have like the communal kitchen and the communal fire. We'll have the communal spaces. And talking to friends who have who have experimented with this or have gone into the poly community, like the number one skill we need to focus on is, right, like finding our center and like bringing our needs and being able to converse about difference. Yeah. And I, and, and not just like this sort of like vanilla reach across the aisle concept, but like really being with tension. Right. And I'd like to say I'm good at that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm working on, I think I am. And then it comes up in like a space, like a community I'm in. And I'm like, whoa, I'm feeling a lot. I'm feeling a lot of heat. I'm feeling a lot of wanting to bolt. And I also deeply desire to feel belonging in community. And the conflict avoidance in me would love to just rest in enmeshment. <laughs> would love to just rest in like-mindedness. Yes. Yeah. It feels easy, but is it easier? You know, I've watched mm-hmm. Wild Wild Country. Like <laughs> I've watched these shows where I'm like, is it easier over in the long term? Is it regenerative? Yeah. Will our children be able to carry it on and heal it even further and and rest in it and feel securely attached in it? Yeah. You know what? Just even when, as you're saying this, what it's made me thinking about is like, okay, how much work it, it takes to actually keep a physical garden regenerative. You know this, you've Mm -hmm. got the chickens and, you know, I don't know what else you've got going back there, but like how much work it takes to actually keep a land healthy, how much work it then takes to keep a community healthy. And I think the real question is, do we have the space and the energy and the capacity, like the skill to do those jobs, to do that work? And a lot of us, one, don't anticipate how much energy it'll take to manage all the relational dynamics or to negotiate with so many different needs. And then a lot of us don't have the skills. So if we don't have the time or the skills, we're going to either go into enmeshment patterns or like control patterns, right? Like either let's all just get along or like, I'm going to be in charge here because no one, no one else knows what they're doing or whatever. So yeah, I mean, that's also like 
why I've been thinking about scale. Like there's, I live in San Diego and there's this one little, I keep like eyeing this one little property that has, it looks like space for four different people and a little courtyard, like four different family units and a, and a courtyard. And I'm like, that's the right scale because let's not try to do something that's too big and then fail. Like what's the next doable step? It might actually just be two families, right? Or two like groups of people instead of five or 10. Because we got to practice these skills and we have to actually be realistic about how much energy and time they take. Right. That's an example of titrating, right? Yeah. (laughs) Taking the bigger desire. I'm just trying to take these concepts as like a a beginner in these, in this world. And for those who are listening, who are like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to catch on to it. It's taking that big vision and breaking it down into something you can metabolize and something you can metabolize. Right. Imagine going from like, I live in a nuclear household or some version of something like that to now I live on the land with five families. Yeah. How much your system would have to adjust to. And like, is there a gentler way that you might adjust and learn smaller lessons and metabolize those lessons? Because what might happen, and this is maybe also why things devolve, right? Is we try to do something really big. It's super overwhelming. We keep trying, keep trying. And then we're like, fuck this. I cannot do this anymore. And we're out. Yeah. Oh, the the garden metaphor is so real too. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I've been... I'm like always a beginner gardener. People, I have people like reach out to me like, oh, I, w- I would love to see your garden. I'm like, I'm a chaos gardener. I take on too much. <laughs> there's so much death involved. Can you handle it? <laughs> I barely can. <laughs> like there's, you know, like I still can't grow a single stalk of corn without crows, eat, you know, eating all of it. Like <laughs> raising chickens. It's gnarly. Are Do you even like, I show you the fluffy fluffy on Instagram, but it's like... And, and so I, Tim and I are always, my partner and I are always reminding each other that we're in the long game. We're in the long game. Mm-hmm. We were raised in suburbia. We're in the long game. And right now we live in our suburban house and we have our chickens. And I'm just trying to grow a plant from seed to flower to fruit back to seed again. One plant. And maybe when I'm <laughs> yes. 85, goddess willing, I'll be able to do that on a bigger scale, you know, and maybe there'll be another family next door. But also like, I don't know. I think there's something to like, what if the bigger scale isn't really the goal? I've been thinking about this and this sort of comes back to the very beginning of our conversation around, you know, running businesses even. And like, what if the bigger scale is not the goal? What if just mastering or, you know, excelling at that seed to flower to fruit to seed and the f- and really enjoying the fulfillment of that and getting the most out of it and, you know, mm. not trying to push further, faster, bigger. Oof, that's, yes. I'm challenged by that and I feel a desire to shift to that. It's growth culture. Oh God, it's it's so real. And I, I I literally have to check myself on that like on a daily or <laughs> weekly basis. So it's not like I'm above this this, but it's like a I'm devoted to that that check, check checking myself around that because I don't want to perpetuate extraction culture. I don't want to perpetuate like the collapse of capitalism in my own body, in my own business. But again, we're under so much more pressure right now, just the energetic pressure cooker that we're in. Like, I wonder how many people are actually going for the bigger scale more now, or if we've all just kind of been on that trajectory. Cause I, you know, it's like mm-hmm. all the graphs show the parabola of like existential collapse that we're sort of basically mm-hmm. inside right now. Mm-hmm. And there could be like different responses to that. There could be like, okay, I'm getting on. I'm getting on the train because I have to keep going up. I have to keep growing, you know, maximizing da, 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 in order to be safe. Or there could be like, that's a whole world that I don't have to be a part of. I can be over here in my backyard garden 
working on the seed to the flower, to the fruit, to the seed and being deeply fulfilled. Mm. But the problem is the backyard garden is owned by the system of extraction. And so it's It's a lot to be with. Yeah. (laughs) You know, this is being human in 2021. It really is. Yeah. I think the deeper sigh and sense of, it really was a part of the deeper conversation at the beginning of the pandemic of like, well, this is finally our opportunity to slow down and be, and be with the smaller bits. Remember when everyone was doing sourdough starters, you know, like (laughs) the desires there, the yearnings there. So it's deeply complex and, but it's a strong, strong thread that's always been alive in humanity and the more than human world that when you say it, I feel like deep trust and truth in it, you know, like, yes, right, right. Okay. That's not, that hasn't left. Right. Well, that's, that's what I like to call like the blueprint, right? That's our natural blueprint. That's the way that we're actually designed. And capitalism is an imprint. It's a traumatic imprint that kind of like (laughs) puts us on up and down, turning all around, spinning all around, you know, ways. But I think it resonates because it's just actually our design. Mm. Well, this is amazing and juicy and we're reaching the end of our space together. And I would love for you to share a bit more about Rebloom <laughs> so that people can dive deeper with you. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so I guess speaking of natural rhythms and regeneration, Rebloom is a model for post-traumatic growth and It's founded in nervous system science and physiology, but also mythology, archetype, storytelling. And the basic premise is that there are seven archetypes that help us cultivate personal and collective post-traumatic growth. So our lives can be a vision of regeneration and our culture can be a vision of regeneration. And these archetypes, they start at the earliest ages and stages of our development. So we were talking a bit about abandonment and neglect um, and worthiness and receptivity. That's the territory of the first archetype, the soul seed. And then we move through seven core kind of competencies or capacities that are naturally intrinsic to our humanity, seven blueprints, like we were just talking about. And these seven blueprints, they all have that same feeling of like, ah, yeah, this is the way it's meant to be. And they each also, each of the archetypes also have an imprint, a trauma that they're prone to or that they tend to experience. They also each have a hyper way of responding to that trauma and a hypo way of responding to that trauma. So for example, the fourth archetype, the sage, the blueprint is clarity and choice, like truth aligned leadership, integrity. The imprint is manipulation and control or gaslighting or narcissism. When we've experienced manipulation and control, we might go into hypervigilance or confusion and following, right? So there's a hyper and a hypo for each archetype. And there's also a path back to the blueprint for each archetype. And you follow this sort of spiraling path and it starts to cultivate inner trust. It starts to cultivate kind of sacred leadership, a sense that you have resiliency and capacity amidst complexity and challenge. And my favorite part about it is like when you're at a crossroads, you can do a a practice called a coherence practice that connects you to each of the blueprints and helps you feel that regenerative capacity inside your own body, that resiliency, that clarity, that courage, and act from the blueprint, act from your natural intelligence rather than your trauma response. So yeah, um, the book is coming out soon, or it might be out right now. And there's also a Rebloom Coherence class that's out now. And that walks you through all seven archetypes and gives you a small doable practice to connect to the blueprint at a body level, at a somatic level. And basically you can like bring a question or a challenge or a crossroads, something that you're feeling blah, like trauma response around 
And you can plug it in with each of the archetypes and sense, feel, hear, see their wisdom at these seven levels of your body and come out feeling a hell of a lot more clear, a hell of a lot more courageous and centered. So everything about Rebloom can be found at rebloomtogether.com or you can just follow me on Instagram at Rachel Maddox and you can learn more. (laughs) And there's like free stuff on that website that can take you through the journey. So yeah, there's lots of entry points. Wonderful. I'm so looking forward to having that in my hot little hands and diving deeper. We'll have all the links at belongingpodcast.com if you're like, I'll just I'll just go click on the things. We have the things for you to click <laughs> on. Just come to the website. Yeah. Thank you so much for diving into all of these, particularly community living and failed cults and all that stuff. <laughs> it's just like really interesting stuff that I really appreciate yeah. your time and energy and presence. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Becca. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.